Welcome to episode 133 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with Sycamore trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all of the podcast players or by going to sycamore.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us in Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. Our sponsor this week is PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. On today's episode, I'm featuring a conversation with Navy veteran Lindsay Church, who goes by they-them pronouns. Lindsay is the executive director and co-founder of Minority Veterans of America, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to creating an equitable and just world for the minority veteran community, including veterans of color, women, LGBTQ+, and religious minority veterans. Lindsay has over a decade of experience rooted in military and veteran advocacy and grassroots organizing and has worked among numerous coalitions to usher in transformational policy changes and reforms. You can find out more about Lindsay by checking out their bio on our show notes, so let's get into my conversation with them and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Lindsay, I'm so excited to be sharing your work with the audience. I'm honored to have been able to hear about your efforts to support diverse veterans, and I'm happy to be bringing that to this audience. But before we get into that, I'd like to provide you an opportunity to share a bit about yourself and why this work is so important to you. Of course. And thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I served in the Navy from 2008 to 2012. I'm a third generation service member. My family's business is military service, including my grandfather, my great uncle, my uncle, my mom, and now my cousin, plus I'm sure many generations of my family will continue to serve. And I grew up, I was the child of a woman veteran and women veterans are often invisible. And my mom served from 78 to 88 and her service was absolutely invisible. She served in the Navy before they even let women on ships and came back to a veteran community that didn't understand her service or welcome her. She didn't talk a lot about her service. And I think part of that was that she was nearly sexually assaulted. And I actually think she was sexually assaulted later and ex experienced extreme marginalization in the military. And so I ended up serving myself. I wanted to serve my country and I wanted to go to college and I wanted the opportunities. And my family has looked at the military through an equity generation lens throughout the last few generations of our family. I served under the policy of don't ask, don't tell. I'm queer, I'm trans. There was also a trans ban when I served, little known because most people talked mostly about don't ask, don't tell. I served all but three months under don't ask, don't tell. And it took me years to really unpack the devastation that it caused in my own life. When I returned, it was really hard not to drink a lot. I got married and got divorced. And I didn't really put all these pieces together that these were the byproducts of my service and being forced to contort myself to be a cisgender, heterosexual woman. And none of those things were true. And when I got out of the military, I went back to Washington and started working with student veterans. I was the post commander of an American Legion. And I just saw how toxic our community really was and started working with veterans in 2014, 15. 
and our community was not welcoming. Some days, even now, it's not that welcoming, but in, back then it was even worse. Around 2016-17, for a lot of minority populations, this country really changed. We saw the rhetoric change and we watched the first assault on reproductive rights. We watched Muslims being banned. And then we watched trans people being banned from the military. We had just seen a change in that policy to barely welcome trans people to the military as it was. And watching the rights of service members be released in a tweet, knowing exactly what they were feeling and knowing that I couldn't imagine another generation going by blocked and, and barred in the same way, in similar ways, don't ask, don't tell. And so we came together. My One of my dear friends is a University of Washington alum, so am I. We came together as a co-founder unit. She's an Asian-American woman. And I'm a trans, queer, non-binary, both of us are veterans. She struggled really hard to see herself in the veteran community. She actually holds a PhD in electrical engineering. And I kid you not, she looked up the definition of a veteran in the dictionary because she wasn't sure that she fit. She's biracial. Her dad is white and a veteran and a man and has always been seen as a veteran. And she didn't go to combat. She didn't finish flight school. Like all of these reasons why she couldn't see herself as a veteran. And the reality of the situation is that there's so many people like us. And so we came together knowing that if we didn't fight and bring together this bigger intersectional movement of minority veterans, we were always going to be stomped out, that there was never going to be a voice that was big enough to be able to move some of the margins that we really needed to and address some of the equity gaps. And so I've been doing this since 2017. We started on in August of 2017 and we've been doing it ever since. Very excited to, to, to still be here after five, six years. It's been a long journey, but I'm very proud of the work that we've done. I have a friend and a colleague, Special Forces Green Beret, who shares his transition story out of the military in this way, that he was frustrated, not even frustrated, he was devastated that in one day the Army said he couldn't be him anymore, which is typical for a lot of transitioning service members once they leave the military. But in your case, that was a choice you had to make to go into the military. This is something that's very impactful to people don't understand that many, as you were talking about, you had to legally conform to what's understanding, but a lot of diverse veterans, minority veterans within the service find that they have to really deny the part of themselves to be able to engage within that community. Absolutely. I actually don't tell very, very often that I joined the military twice. Once when I was supposed to, I was actually in the delayed entry program in 2003 when I was graduating high school. And in the 13 months that I had to wait, I came out as LGBTQ. I knew that I couldn't serve my country at that point because of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Five years later, I still felt the same need to serve my country. And I ended up joining the military in 2008. But I felt that like compulsion to serve. And I there's a piece of paper that we, Don't Ask, Don't Tell survivors, signed that said that we would not and did not and have not engaged in homosexual conduct. And to sign that paper and know that there is an honor, courage, commitment, and that's almost all of the military's core values. I know it is for the Navy. I'm literally lying the very beginning. And it's all in the, in the name of serving my country. And it's all in the name of protecting the people that I love back home. And we still had to lie and contort ourselves. And I, I say often that it's there's a I think a verse in the Bible that talks about the need to cut off the pieces of yourself that don't fit. And it's like the equivalent of cutting off an arm that you cut off this parts of yourself. And this uniform that we wear, I often say that the uniform of the military is not actually the clothing that we wear. It's the identities that we wear. It's the identity of a straight white Christian male, uh, cisgender. And if we don't fit into that box, we contort ourselves to be that, whether we are or not. And so we navigate the service, cutting off those pieces of ourselves, trying to navigate a system and serve our country at the same time because we love 
our country. We love the people and we want to fight for America. And at the same time, we're having to deny ourselves. And that comes, that, that eventually stacks up. Like it doesn't just not have, you don't just not feel it. Eventually, when you get out of the military, you see that these things stack up. If you look at the rates of suicide for transgender veterans, it's 5.85 times more likely than the civilians, than their civilian counterparts, and two times more likely than other veterans to die by suicide. That's not by accident. It's everything that we'd endured in service. It's everything that we endured in VA. It's everything that we endured as veterans in the world that causes us to feel such great distress to the point where we are experiencing mental health crisis, suicidal ideations. All of these things at an outpaced rate based off of who we are. Another little known fact is that one in five transgender people will serve this country. Transgender Americans are two to three times more likely than their cisgender Americans to serve our country. And yet they still build laws that say that we don't belong or try to limit our care, whether it be in service or out of service, whether or not we get access to the appropriate culturally competent care all depends on whether or not they see us as human beings. And oftentimes the answer is they don't. And even as I'm listening to you, I'm angry about this. This is in, in, in this causes emotions in individuals. But even as you're thinking, I'm thinking back, I served for 22 years in a career field in the army that was diverse. I was in support. And so I worked with, for, and led women throughout my entire military career. In the mid nineties, uh, there was somebody in our platoon. We knew that he was in the LGBTQ community and didn't care that would like he, he was, he actually promoted. He was one of the best sergeants that I had. And it was, we all get to this point of saying, oh, it doesn't matter. We all bleed green. That That is whitewashing it, so to speak. But really it's a matter, it didn't matter to those of us who are serving with them. And this is the idea of who are we to tell people that they can't do what they do. So just one, to be able to recognize that I feel that. And for some people, it may be, make people sad. It may be distressing. For me, it's causing anger. But I think having these conversations are necessary because if we don't, People are not moved emotionally to take action on those emotions. Absolutely. And if we're not moved by this, one, we as a country need to really reassess our position on supporting the troops. And two, there, you served, you said, what, what years did you say you served? Early 90s, 2014. There was a lot of conversation about Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the prior policy before 1991-93 that Don't Ask, Don't Tell actually led to more people being outed. When they talked about Don't Ask, Don't Tell, don't don't, Do Not Pursue, oftentimes you talk about the people that were found out, but nobody ever got in trouble for asking. However, before the policy, a lot of people talked about how there was fewer people cared and fewer people got in trouble because it was a, a somewhat more liberal policy, but it was actually not uniformly administered. So some units really tried to protect their LGBTQ service members, knowing full well that we've been serving throughout history and that the military is all about fielding every American that's willing to raise their hand. And as a service member, it, you know how much it takes for somebody to raise their hand and the people that are never going to be willing to say, to, to raise their hand. And a lot of times I felt more acceptance from the people that just knew by chance or just by the way I look. And I've looked this way my whole life. And so I, those folks were the ones that told me, here are the ways that you can not be outed. And granted, some of that advice wasn't great, but they were protective. And it should invoke anger. What has happened to minority service members, we're talking women, racial minorities, we're talking LGBTQ folks, we're talking religious minorities. It should be the most unpatriotic thing to Americans, what we have done to service members and what continues to happen to service members. And if we don't talk about it, you're going to have a cycle because even now they're considering bans on transgender people. Right now they're considering bans on gender affirming care. 
they're literally still talking about these same things that we thought that we defeated 12 years ago. We're still talking about policies that should never be brought back up. And somehow they make it into our National Defense Authorization Act or they make it into our budget, which is where our, all of our policy is made. And so if we don't have these conversations and people aren't angry, they're going to pass those bills. And we're going to go through this all over again as a nation. And one thing I do want to say is that when I say don't ask, don't tell survivor, I mean it. We talk about people who served under don't ask, don't tell as just regular people that did the thing. We are survivors. We are survivors of a policy that criminalized our identities and did actual destructive harm. Some people don't believe that gender dysphoria is a result of military service. And I can tell you that's categorically false. I didn't come out as transgender until I was 36 years old. I waited until 10 years after the military because I had pushed every part of myself down so hard that it took 10 years for me to really break open who I was. I can tell you that I was belittled for my hairstyle. I was held up and made to stand at attention for hours because of my hairstyle. They told, told me it was out of regulations. They wouldn't let me leave buildings. I was literally harassed legally, intentionally. And it was, it was not only condoned, it was promoted. It was permitted by people that were supposed to be leaders. And getting out, it took me forever to really break open that I was not what I thought. I was not all of these things. But I had contorted myself to the point where even I believed it. Literally, the military teaches you. I couldn't serve as non-binary today in the military. It's still outlawed. I would still have to pick a binary gender. People like myself are still serving in the military as a binary gender, even if they are non-binary. That is what our military is doing to people every single day, even now. And I think this is if we look back at other instances of, say, policy change. Again, we, we think back to the 40s or 50s when the military was integrated. And we just recently celebrated 75 years of women being able to serve a career before they were only able to serve portions of up to a certain period of time. And when these policies and then the repeal of don't ask, don't tell. So look, if we look at those three things, it's not one day it's good and then the next day it's fixed, right? There is this, it really, this is going to be a generational thing that we're going to be supporting LGBTQ plus service members who were received other than honorable discharges. Like we're going to be fighting for the damage done by don't ask, don't tell for a generation until the next generation of service members, until we either right those wrongs or enough time passes. And I think that's something that we don't go back and look and see. That's the same kind of thing that women had to go through in the 70s, that uh, racial minorities had to go through after integration in the 40s and 50s. Absolutely. That's uh, 100% correct. We are now like talking about 75 years since racial integration, 75 years since gender integration, and allowing women to serve openly authentically since but when you look at and neither one of those things is, is right right that like we know i mean even yesterday in a debate about the ndaa we were talking somebody named colored people we are still 75 years after integration fighting against this harmful rhetoric we see the impacts of of racist policies when it comes to the administration of, of disability benefits when it comes to the administration of whether or not somebody's believed for their mental health whether or not their belief for their physical pain after service. Uh, we also see that racial minorities are more likely to be involved in the justice system, both in service and after it. That's 75 years later. For women, more likely still to be sexually assaulted. But we have never, since we started recording numbers about sexual assault in the military, we've never seen numbers higher than last year. We are still 75 years fighting for gender and racial integration, knowing full well that we have not gotten there. 
So when we talk about queer service members and people that served under Don't Ask, Don't Tell or the trans ban, we don't even know how many people were kicked out. Like the military just recently released information and we thought for the last 10 years that there are about 14,000 Don't Ask, Don't Tell discharges. DOD just told us a couple weeks ago that there are actually 28,000. We don't even know and we don't even have a list of all the people that were kicked out under this one technical discharge because DOD doesn't even have that information. We still have service members and veterans that are, don't consider themselves veterans because their discharge hasn't been upgraded, who will never return to the system that is intended and designed to serve them because we'll never reach them. They've either moved on with their lives or they've likely died by suicide, experienced extreme mental health crisis because they were, dis they were not just only discharged. They were thrown away by a country that told them if they serve, they would be a full American. And here we are. We're not. We, will, we haven't even come to look at the long-term legacy of Don't Ask, Don't Tell because we don't even know how many people were hurt by it. And when you think about Don't Ask, Don't Tell, it's not just the folks that got the Don't Ask, Don't Tell discharge. There's many folks that were criminalized, kicked out because they got in trouble, more likely to receive donut or dishonorable discharges for other reasons than Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We will never know how many people we truly harmed as a country, and our country at this current moment will not take on the, the task of looking at that because we can't even believe that LGBTQ people in this country matter, let alone looking at our military service members and veterans and what they've experienced under these policies. And we are likely to repeat our mistakes if we don't look at it, but we refuse as a country to acknowledge the harm that has been done. The government of the United States has never apologized to queer service members. However, if you look at Canada, if you look at UK, they are apologizing to they're citizens because they know the deep harm and lasting legacy that those policies had on people. I think, and obviously the passion and the emotion is there. And again, as, as I'm experiencing it myself, but really it's not just about passion. Like being passionate isn't enough. And this goes back to what you're talking about with Minority Vets. Minority Vets of America is an organization that is trying to share this message broadly. It's not just you. It's not just Lindsay going out there uh, talking about these things. It's really taking the passion and really trying to take action to make a difference. What can you tell us about Minority Vets and the work that you're doing? So we, like I said, we started in 2017. We started in Seattle, Washington as an intersectional movement, one, to create community, one, because we just needed a place to belong and a place that for all of its good and bad that our veteran community could go and expect, you know, less or no harm, because that's really what people have experienced. But it's also an organizing body. We have organized again on campaigns throughout the last six years, including stuff on sexual assault and harassment on the military trans ban. We literally watched as it got signed away in executive order. We have been working on reproductive health. We've been working on the issues that people don't often see from veteran organizations. We are doing our best to pick up those priorities and move them forward. So we are a community program. So we are intended to have our programs, including we have a people to people program out in Seattle. That's really amazing. It does a lot of outreach services and works on case management, creating a community out there. We have an emerging leaders program really looking at how do we address this leadership gap? Because when you don't with everything that we just talked about, the veteran community often doesn't take minority veterans and elevate them to positions of leadership. So when you look at boards of directors, executive directors, you're not going to find people like me. You're going to find folks that are from dominant culture identities. And so our goal is to really address that leadership gap by producing more leaders and giving more training and education that's focused on people in the margin. We also have an equity, inclusion and justice summit, which is all about educating our community, because at the end of the day, 
we can only do so much in our own space with our own folks. We actually need more people to come in for education, to to become more knowledgeable about the things that we are working on, the things that our community cares about, and really making sure that message is not lost just just in our little echo chamber, because oftentimes that's where it's that's what happens is that we talk and talk and we yell and scream, but we're telling the same people, our own members. Yes, they know full well what's going on. I the summit is all about bringing in people who are not necessarily aware, who may not know what's going, what's happening within the veteran community, and really making sure we're advancing that education piece. Because my goal as a leader is not for people to have to come to MVA, right? That minority vets should not be the only place in which a veteran can go that lives in the margins that it's that they have to go. They should choose our organization because every other organization has pushed themselves to be better by us, by the people that we serve. And so we work really hard on both our programs and our policy to ensure that one, we stabilize our community now because we're experiencing extreme marginalization, but that we address the equity gap so that long term our community has better outcomes. And I think one of the things I've always valued about you and your work and the work of minority vets is you hear a lot of times people think that this is a zero sum game, that if we're supporting minority service members or diverse service members, then that means someone else is not getting the support. But your perspective is it goes back to the supporting troops. If we're supporting troops, we're supporting all troops. And it's not a zero sum game. It's really lifting all boats. Of course, I, I say often, and you know this, that if we program to the margins, we'll serve everybody better. And so I'll give you a couple of examples. I used to work in higher education, and oftentimes I would miss class because my disabilities, all the things I was experiencing, the surgeries and all those things. When you miss class, you often need disability accommodations. And one of them is recording lectures, having your professor record lectures. When I ask you to record your lectures because I am not able to make it into class, other people who have children and couldn't make it, other people who have need for closed captions, other people who had a football game, everybody, everybody is served better by my request to do that. And by them looking at, okay, I want to make sure that from a disability perspective that we're doing this correctly, everybody will be served better by having access to that, whether it be the kid who wants to study more, the person who needs closed captions, the person who missed class because of X, Y, and Z. Everybody will be served better by that. We also look at things like VA. So VA, we've been working really hard on a childcare expansion because many people don't have a, a childcare option but need to go to their doctor appointment. And so we, everybody talks about women veterans being single moms. Sure. Okay. That number is higher. Correct. There are also single dads. There are also regular people who are married and don't have access to childcare. There are people that experience socioeconomic challenges. There's a number of people that if you could drop your child off into a daycare facility at the VA that would be able to go to their appointments that maybe wouldn't be able to go otherwise. In the instance of DOD, think about the gender-affirming care for transgender service members. That's something we've been fighting for and something that's on the docket. We also are pushing TRICARE to make sure that they cover gender-affirming care for, the, for service members' children to make sure that they're, if a service member has a child that needs access to that care or needs to be relocated using the exceptional family member program, that they have access to do that. It's not just transgender service members. It's actually heterosexual cisgender men that have trans kids or LGBTQ kids or that their wife needs access to reproductive health. All of these things, maybe we did, maybe originally is for transgender service members, but it also covers so many other people that will then not have to fight for these things of these basic rights in order to be able to access them. When we talk about doing these things, it's not a zero-sum game. I actually approach, I am very much an abundance mentality because we have more than we think and we have better options than we think we do. 
when we fight each other is actually when this gets nasty and hostile. We don't have to fight each other. We actually can support each other in the fights that we have rather than tearing each other apart and saying it's not necessary because you don't know. It actually is necessary. These things will improve our health outcomes. These things will improve our mental health outcomes. All of that is true. And all of that is something that we as a community can fight for collectively if given the option. Yes, absolutely. And I wish, and in one sense, I could just end it right there because you're exactly right. That, that is the idea is if we did this together, it would not be as much of a problem. Lindsay, I absolutely appreciate. I appreciate every time that, that you and I are able to engage, but also being able to come and share your story. If people want to find out more about Minority Vets of America, how can they do that? A couple of ways. You can go on our website, minorityvets.org. You can become a member. We would highly encourage you to consider it. You'll continue to get emails and updates about what we're doing. You can also follow us on social media at Minority Vets on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And yeah, just keep a keep an eye out. We do a lot of organizing, a lot of work towards making sure the policy changes happen, and also a lot of work on the ground to connect with our community. We'll be out there this summer, so keep an eye out for us and follow us on social media. Absolutely. We'll make sure that all those links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. One of the things that I value about Lindsay is their passion and dedication to educating the community on the challenges experienced by minority veterans. These can be difficult conversations. They don't have to be, as Lindsay mentioned towards the end of the conversation. If we fight each other, if we insist on positions of right and wrong and attempt to convince others to conform to our opinions of what should or should not be happening, then that's when things get nasty and hostile, as they said. But to listen, to understand the other person's perspective, to recognize the validity of the other person's argument, that's one step in the right direction. But people who are not members of a diverse population also have the privilege to choose to engage in this conversation. As Lindsay shared, they themselves have lived the conversations about not being afforded the same opportunities as others. They experienced discrimination based on how they looked and acted. What were we all taught growing up? That sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you? In other words, toughen up, get thick skin, don't let what others say bother you. But what happens when the words of not just a few insensitive people are directed towards you, but when the literal laws of the country you live in are against you? The regulations of the organization you have sworn to serve say that you don't have the right to make your own choices in life, choices that have nothing to do with your ability to carry out your oath. What happens when you are systematically belittled, harassed, ridiculed, singled out, and marginalized? For veterans who are not a member of a diverse population, this happens infrequently, if at all. For veterans who are members of the diverse population, it happens more frequently than you might think. There may be people that listen to my conversation with Lindsay who may not agree, that's their choice and their right, just as it's mine and Lindsay's choice and right to have the conversation. I would hope that those who disagree would take the time to consider why they may disagree, and if the conversation is uncomfortable, to take the time to engage more directly in the conversation to overcome the discomfort rather than disengage. That's how we partner to make real change, rather than perpetuate a system of thinking that does real harm to the diverse service member and veteran population. One other point before I wrap up, and it's related to Lindsay's sharing of the broader mission of Minority Vets to identify and support leaders who are members of the diverse veteran community. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you've heard this before. 
It's very hard to consider yourself in a potential leadership position if you don't see people in authority who look like you, act like you, or hold the same beliefs as you. In theory, the military is meritocratic in that promotion and authority is based on ability and achievement. Of course, those of us who serve can think of so many exceptions to that rule that the exceptions may become the rule. But there is theoretically a path for the lowest-ranking sailor to become a command master chief, the path for the cadet to become a four-star general. It's extremely hard. Consider the difference between the number of cadets and the number of four-star generals. And then consider how much more difficult that is for members of a diverse population who do not see themselves in positions of authority or leadership and have to experience many more obstacles to get there. It often takes a bold voice to step out, to lead in spite of the obstacles, who then turns to support other leaders, a trailblazer who stands above the crowd knowing that by putting themselves forward, they're opening themselves up to more criticism, to greater attacks, and, in spite of them all, to have the courage to continue to speak as long as they have the ability to do so. Of the many things that I value about Lindsay, it's their boldness and their passion for making real change for the diverse veteran population that are among my favorites. So I hope you appreciated my conversation with Lindsay. If you did, we'd appreciate hearing from you. So if you do have some feedback, let us know. Drop a review in your podcast player of choice or send us an email at info at We're always glad to hear from listeners, both feedback on the show and suggestions for future guests. For this week's Psychomer Resource of the Week, I'd like to share a podcast episode from way back in the archives, episode 12 with Dr. Samuel Odom and First Lieutenant Marlon Dorch, where we have a conversation about cultural diversity in military social work. In this episode, Dr. Odom, who is a veteran and former military social worker, and Lieutenant Dorch, who is currently serving as a military social worker, join the show to talk about the role of military social workers and the importance of diversity and inclusion from a military social worker perspective. You can find a link to the resource in the show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in the podcast app, as well as on the Psychummer website, psychummer.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with Psychummer on social media to let us know what you thought about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by Psycharmor. Much appreciation to the team at Psycharmor that makes the show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track and is an outstanding guest coordinator. Support and transcripts by Emma Atherall. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.